We're talking to Tara Hurst, a candidate for Portland City Council position two. Her website is TaraForPDX.com. This is the race with, I think, 174 candidates running for Nick Fish's seat with a somewhat abbreviated timetable for the election. Part of the Vision 2020 series, trying to interview all of the key local candidates here in Portland and the surrounding area. Tara, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. What's it like running for office in the middle of a global crisis? Um, well, it's my first time running for office either way. So, so you don't have anything to compare it to. all I know. <laughs> as far um, as I you know, every campaign pandemic. is in the middle of a yeah. pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's, it's creating a space where we um, are trying to find ways to connect with community that are not your traditional ways. Um, and maybe that's not a bad thing. And also just keeping a focus on what's important. And that's you know, making sure that we all come out of this um, better, if if that's possible, and I think it is. So it's it's a weird time, it's a hard time. I go back and forth between wanting to talk only about coronavirus because it's dominating most of our attention, most of the news, much of our national and local priority. Or then not want to talk about it at all, really, and focus on other things entirely. I suspect we will try to strike some balance. Here is an attempt at that. As you think about your priorities and the priorities that you hope the city of Portland will be embracing or the problems that you see in the city that need to be solved, how are we seeing cracks in the streets of Portland's landscape? How are we seeing holes in our social safety net or significant gaps that are being exposed by the current crisis? Oh, well, we're seeing them everywhere. Um, I one small one example. I um, I volunteered at Street Roots yesterday morning um, because they were asking people to sign up for a couple hour shifts. Um, many of their volunteers were unable to make it, and the um, there was a line outside the door of people of vendors waiting to either. Um, pick up new papers, which they didn't realize, uh, some didn't realize weren't being printed anymore because they can't sell them right now. Um, and just trying to get 10 to $45 for the week for, you know, as, as a source of income. And so those are cracks in our streets. I hadn't even thought, I hadn't even thought about street roots vendors. What an idiot I am. Of course, if they're out there, they're yeah. this brilliant way yeah. to raise some money that requires people walking around on the sidewalk. And, and physical contact, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, handing over a paper. Um, and so I think they had to make the really hard decision and uh, to not print anymore and to go online. But because Street Roots is such a bedrock um, of the, especially for the houseless community, um, which means for the, our whole community, they weren't willing to just say we're not selling papers. Um, they they had people coming in and, and just getting daily stipends. And that's, you know, that's a small effort that took hours and a lot of staff time. Um, and the gratitude that I saw on people's faces as they were getting the money um, to be able to move on was was pretty inspiring and just helps you take a deep breath and, and, and remember what you have. And I know that that um, can sound trite, but right now we really are, are in that space. What what do we have to be grateful for? Um, and I have a lot. So I would say that, you know, we already have a huge safety net issue to go back to your question. Sure. And 
that was one issue, right? I walk from, I live in Sunnyside neighborhood and I walk to Old Town every day to go to work. And, and I see the devastation of, um, and, you know, kind of the degrading of humanity that we have, we've allowed um, as a society to have so many people sleeping out in the streets. Um, you know, we are 47th in Oregon of access to treatment. Um, and that's not just for our, our homeless population. That's for anybody looking to get um, treatment for alcohol and, and drug addiction. Um, and is that what, 47th those, in that particular kind of treatment or 47th for any kind of treatment for anything? My understanding is it's 47th in the alcohol and drug. And we, and we go, we vacillate back and forth. And that's really from the work that I've been doing with Oregon Recovers. Um, as a person in long-term recovery myself, you know, I understand the difference it makes if you don't have access to a detox bed. Um, you know, when I, right before my 20th birthday, we were driving around, my friend ended up driving me around uh, all night until a detox bed opened up for me because I knew that if I, I went to sleep that night, um, I wouldn't, I would change my mind about being ready to get clean and sober. And I wouldn't be here today if it hadn't been for that detox bed and the treatment that I was able to go um, to get. How old were and, you when all this went down, when you finally hit rock bottom, maybe you hit rock bottom more than once, and you decided not only to get treatment, but stick with it and get into long-term, hopefully permanent recovery. Uh, how old were you? Tell us more about it. So I was uh, 19 when my mom told me she didn't think I would make it to my 20th birthday. She was um, scared that I wouldn't live that long. And were you a student and, somewhere? Uh, were you going to school and just partying a lot? What was the what was the situation? No, I knew that I shouldn't go to school. Um, I barely made it out of high school, quite frankly, because I was uh, using and drinking a lot through my teens. I think I there's a great line from Leaving Las Vegas where he said, "I don't know if my wife left me because of my drinking or if my." you know, or if I'm drinking because my wife left me. And it was a lot of, I don't know if I was depressed because of my drinking or if I had depression and drinking exacerbated it as a teen, but that wasn't something that we talked about at all, mental health and teenagers. Um, when, did you, when did you start drinking and using? Uh, probably around 13, 14. Group of friends um, just out at somebody's house? Uh, no, it was all over. You know, we were, I grew up in a non-traditional household My uh, with a single mom in Nova Scotia. We were Tibetan Buddhists, and it was a group of pretty hardcore partying uh, adults in my life. And that was a little bit, probably a little more normalized than a lot of people's upbringing. Um, and we were kind of known as, that was that was the stigma that we carried around as this new uh, new group of, of people living in Halifax was this, we were part of the, we were called the Dharma Brats. And um, it was a lot of alcohol and drugs. Um, and where some people grow out of it, I basically barely got out of high school. I knew college wasn't in my future. And quite frankly, I really, my goal was to not live to seem to be 20. Um, and so I waited tables at diners and, um, when I wasn't waiting tables, I was, and even when I was waiting tables, I was drinking and, and, and doing drugs to, to keep up. And this was all in Nova Scotia? Um, no, that, that was in upstate New York. Got it. 
and we then moved around a lot. And so you're so moving around a lot in a non-traditional household. You're uh, drinking and using, working, uh, working as wait staff. Uh, you, you say you're 19 when all of a sudden kind of the uh, hit fits the shan and you try to make a significant change? Yeah, so it's, it's more that I, they say that in recovery, they say that you come to a place in life where you realize you can't live with drugs and alcohol and you can't live without them. Um, which is a really dark place. Yeah. And I hit that one night and my friend, it was after a lot of, you know, a lot of things going wrong. Uh, and my friend drove me around. That was the night my friend drove me around until we got a detox bed. And I was just a couple days, maybe a week or two before my 20th birthday. Um, and I spent my 20th birthday in a rehab um, in upstate New York in Syracuse. And that was for 30 days. Um, and when I got out, I just wasn't able to stay clean in the same environment that I had been in all of those spaces. So I relapsed and then uh, went to South Florida for long-term uh, treatment. And that was for 90 days. Um, and that's where I met my recovery community, which I kind of uh, equate to what many people think of as their college friends. Um, who they have lifelong friends. Mine are my treatment folks and the people that I basically grew up with um, in South Florida. Your fraternity sisters, and, your sorority brothers? Yeah, my AA brothers and sisters. Uh, and I'm still in contact with most of them today. We went through marriages, deaths. You know, my mom died a year after I got my, my uh, one-year clean chip. And... Uh, AA was there, you know, holding me as I went through that grief. It was sudden and, and, uh, devastating. Who'd you um, hurt? It's very often in recovery. We talk about the hero's journey or heroine's journey of the person who's able to get out of it. There are other people involved in the scenario. Who'd you hurt during that time? And how do you make recompense to them? Oh, I hurt my family. Um, when you're self-destructive, I can't, you know, I, my son is 13. I can't imagine what my mom went through. And to think of your kid not making it past 19 is just a awful, um, unimaginable. It was really the people who were closest to me, my friends that were the closest to me at that point, um, my, you know, my family, and and quite frankly, the people that were, uh, anywhere near me, I was like a, I was like a Tasmanian devil, just wreaking havoc. Um, how do you how do you make up for that? Spiral. Do you just move on, or how do you make up for that? No, I mean that's part of you know my my recovery path includes a twelve step program and an AA, and that's the work that you do uh, that I did with my sponsor, where we we worked through my amends and you do it when it's actually ready and not just to make yourself feel better, but to actually give a genuine um, apology. And the best way you can make amends, especially to someone like my mom was for her to see me commit and, and every day wake up and, and agree to be clean and sober that day. And I, and I do that to, to today, but the, I think the, the biggest, one of the biggest lessons from all of that is, you know, you only have thinking that I would be clean and sober for 23 years was completely out of the question when I was getting sober. Um, but everybody just told me, just 
stay sober today. Let's you use do it today. Let's use that as our segue to today. You're now running for the city council. How does that experience, both the bad parts and the good parts, inform your candidacy? What do you want to do? One of the things you want to do is, of course, be aware of what's happening for drug and alcohol treatment for people out there, including people who are experiencing houselessness. How else is it informing your candidacy? Well, I think when you struggle with something like that and and you are at a place where you are looking at death, um, every day is a day that you're grateful for. At least that's that's for my case. Um, and looking at the city and looking at the work that I've been able to do since then um, is, you know, is what keeps me going. I know that city government and I worked for Mayor Hales for two and a half years. I was his deputy chief of staff and his chief of staff. City government's where you can make the biggest impact on people's lives um, in the kind of in the quickest time. And if you look at where we are today and the issues that we were facing pre-corona, but now with this new added layer that none of us have a complete picture, obviously, about what it's actually going to do to our our system, it's important to not get lost in the spiral of anxiety on the what ifs, but really keep a steady hand on, okay, who are the populations that are being most impacted right now? How do we get the biggest amount of aid um, to them the quickest? And how do we cut through a lot of the bureaucratic tape? Um, That's the stuff, you know, when coming as a person in recovery, I think it is a very different lens. And it's a different lens in terms of, you know, not closing detoxes and sobering centers and recognizing the harm um, to the recovery community right now when we can't do, uh, when people can't meet one on, you know, together in a meeting, it's about how do we make sure that Zoom is available and all the recovery link work that um, the Alano Club, you know, Brent and Oregon Recovers um, and Mark Marshall are, are working on to make sure because we know that those lifelines are exactly that. And if you haven't utilized those services before, it's really hard to know just the gravity of it. You know, housing is another one where we can't let up on the work that um, Home Forward and a lot of the other folks are doing um, on our housing, because housing is going to become an even bigger crisis after this. And we need to keep our eye on the ball and make sure that we don't have families slipping from housing to houselessness during this time. And I'm really concerned that we're, you know, that we're not putting together the measures that we need to do in a way that is going to keep people, the evictions are good. All of those things are good. It's just the eviction moratorium is good. I should clarify. Uh, And yeah, you're not praising evictions. You're praising the pause. (laughs) I think people got that. Um. But there's so much more that still needs to be done. Right. And there was some really good implementation work that's been started. And I'd hate for us to lose any momentum uh, as as this is happening. I think people need to be able to do uh, all of all of the above. That's what well, leadership. And I want to get right? in and, and I want to get into some of that. You were talking to Tara Hurst, candidate for city council of Portland in a crowded field, received a bunch of endorsements early out, even prior to any uh, interview process for those. And that's one of the things we'll want to talk about. You served as one of, and then the key staffer for former mayor, Charlie Hales, which gives you lots of experience about the city, understanding about it. How would you rate Charlie Hales on a scale of one to 10 as a mayor? 
Oh, I'm not going to rate Charlie. I think. How would you compare him to Ted Wheeler? Uh, also, not going to do that. But here's what I'll say: I think that um, Charlie uh, changed a lot in his uh, leadership in City Hall. It was I learned a lot from him um, in terms of you know he had vast experience in in City Council, and he is still one of you know he was an incredible boss and a really thoughtful and um, and and smart leader. And I think that Portland would have benefited with him having a second term. Um, but he's somebody that I respect. So that's at least one way of saying you'd put him, you might give him a nose ahead of Ted Wheeler. Oh, I mean, I've worked, it's, you know, it's, I've worked with Charlie. Yeah, absolutely. He is a, um, a smart, thoughtful leader, and he had a steady hand. What? And he was willing to take risks. What are things, I understand that some of these questions you'll dodge and you'll answer as much as you can and people will hope that you will. The, uh, as, you're serve, as you're a staffer for somebody, right, you don't get to make all those decisions. When you're the chief of staff, a lot of things you do get to be the filter for. You get to make a lot of recommendations. You're inside the room for a lot of those decisions, but you're not the decision maker. What are some things you wish would have happened differently during the Charlie Hales administration that had you been on city council or been the mayor would have happened differently? There was components that, you know, I'm not sure I would have done, but I also wasn't in uh, City Hall at the time um, when they when Charlie uh, Hales and, and they had their first, you know, the first year and a half um, of the administration. There are things that I would do differently just because I am different. Um, you know, I think that uh, Mayor Hales gave me gave his staff and trusted his staff, which was really helpful and allowed us to move forward on issues that we felt were were critical uh one that i got to push for was the mayor's community center initiative and that was one that um you know we were able to open up our community centers to seven thousand over seven thousand teens because the barrier had been cost and they just weren't um operating as as centers um for our community they were operating more in a revenue generation only and I think that if, you know, I know that as city council, um, I would have the Parks Bureau uh, at that time. I would have wanted the Parks Bureau and I would have pushed for that to have been a much more expansive uh, program. We were able to do what we could do within our, our bounds. But, but that's one that I, would, I still would like to uh, push and make sure that we are, are really using our community centers for what they are, which is for the community and not just as revenue generators, because I think we're missing um, a lot of critical space and and opportunities for not only our youth to have safe spaces, but also for that intergenerational connection. Um, you know, I think that we just we come in with different priorities and different perspectives. My perspective and my priority right now really is about around making sure that we are addressing this housing crisis um, as swiftly and with as much compassion and understanding what works. Um, and we've we've done enough of that trial and error and pilot programs to start expanding at scale. Um, that was kind of burgeoning as we were in uh city hall at the time 
um, and you can't let your finger off. You have to keep going. So uh, I, 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 understand, I understand being hesitant to offer too much critique of the time when you were serving with the former mayor. Uh, I will want then to ask you about the last few years, particularly at least related to that, and to put this in some context. Uh, and I'm, the question I'm going to ask you, you can have a second to think about it is, what have we screwed up in the last three years or what are the missed opportunities we've had in the last three years? And in this context, arguably good news or bad news, there develops roughly a liberal consensus among elected power in Portland. Even recently, the county chair, the mayor and the governor got together shoulder to shoulder and said the same basic, you know, stay safe, stay at home thing, which wasn't exactly clear. It was a lockdown or not a lockdown. Wasn't exactly clear that was different than anything a week ago. Uh, But there emerged this sort of consensus. The good news is there's less polarization among members of city council, county commission, uh, Democrats and legislature, et cetera. Potential bad news is if there's groupthink, if in fact we are dumber together because we aren't being we aren't embracing the benefits of loyal conflict. Uh, What are areas where you think the city has gotten it wrong in the last few years or do you think they're batting pretty well? Oh, I think the city's gotten it wrong in multiple spaces, and it's not just in the last few years. Um, I think that we are not treating housing and houselessness as a crisis. Um, I think that we are not, um, we're putting out proclamations on climate, but not actually rolling up our sleeves and pushing for uh, policies that will um, help us achieve those goals. I think that um, we've allowed our park system and our community center system um, to start to really become uh, just a, a nice to have instead of a central component of our city. Um, and, you know, I do think that it is better. Uh, we did not do a good job of keeping, um, of always getting along with the council and it got very contentious at times, which was distracting from the crisis at hand. Um, And it is good to see that there is more more cohesion between the county and the city. That's really important, especially in times like these. That's why we helped create the joint office. Um, There just needs to be so much more work on that. You can't just create it and then uh, move on. Well, let's take those three then. Let's start with houselessness, which uh, no question, a crisis before COVID-19, uh, demonstrating some of the particular elements of that crisis, in, of the houselessness crisis in the context of the current crisis. What's the biggest thing we've gotten wrong or what's the biggest thing we do now? Is it we haven't been bold enough to, I don't know, use Wapato to build some new facility, which not, might not be up to otherwise code on one of the waterfronts or somewhere else? Is it because we haven't asked voters for enough money? Is it we haven't waved magic wand and had Ronald Reagan stop gutting public housing funding in the 80s? What are the things that we should have done and what are the things we should do? And let me give another preface to this. When I was interviewing the mayor, I got a que- I asked folks, hey, what's a question? You asked, I thought, one of the best questions anybody asked. And I got it after the interview, which was, uh, hey, I don't want to just hear about what's in the way. I want to hear about how you're going to identifying those things that are in the way and how you're going to get around them. So in that spirit, in that spirit uh, regard, regarding the houselessness crisis, what are you going to do about it? What should we be doing about it? Uh, yeah, I think that we need to not let the first barrier that we we see in bureaucracy, which is very common, uh, to let that be the no. I'm, I come from a sales background. You, you get three no's, right? You have to ask three times. Uh, and in bureaucracy, it's probably more than that. 
And we, when you treat this as a crisis, no cannot be an answer. So how do you get through the barriers of that's not my bureau doesn't own that land and therefore I can't try and see if we can put a tiny house village on it. Um, it's working with the other bureaus. It's finding that land until people can't say no. I mean, those were the, that was the work that we were doing at the end of our administration was driving around and looking at the uh, city-owned lots and figuring out with hmm. the rebuilding center and all the great community um, resources, how do we create more spaces for people to live in a thoughtful way? Not how do we cram 500 people into a space, but how do we actually create a space where people could wake up the next day and access the services that they need and, and help them get back onto a path um, where their lives are, you know, whether it's employed or just getting the services, um, you know, whatever the path is, but it's not on the street. So you don't think so it's getting, primarily, you don't think it's primarily a price per unit problem, maybe you do, or a an overall amount of money to purchase those units at that price per unit, but you think one of the key elements that you'd want to be pushing on is actually making sure that there is the land to put those units upon. I think it's in all of the above. I think that we should not fall uh, desperate to just one strategy. This is an issue where we need to do all of the things. Is, uh, by, is having land and putting tiny houses on it the answer? No, but it's an answer, right? You are impacting 14, you know, look at Kenton Women's Village, which is the one that I pushed at the end of, my, um, of our time in uh, the mayor's office, which was an ultimate hurdle. It was a constant, and that's where a lot of my questions around barriers and how do you get around them. The way you get around them is not giving up. You push and you push and you push. And, and that's what I've shown in my own leadership over and over again. And that's what we need right now. We need to continue to push. So it is a price per unit. It's also that we need more permanent supportive housing, right? We absolutely have to be not just putting people in housing, but if they have uh, chronic issues or their dual diagnosis, uh, we need to be also addressing those. That is a that evidence-based practice, it is something that we know works. And so we should be um, putting our money into programs that work and that actually alleviate chronic homelessness. Um, we also need to make sure that people don't slip into homelessness. So we need a stronger rent voucher system. Uh, we have, uh, the last I heard, there was about 16,000 people that applied in 2016, about 3,000 made it on the wait list, and we're just starting to get to those folks. These are people's lives. These are people who are living day-to-day um, -day wondering if they're going to lose their home and what they're going to do, and the amount of stress and anxiety that that creates for a family. And if we can solve it upstream, that helps a lot on the downstream. Yeah. The... So that's a, and we need to tie it to schools so that um, families aren't being moved around the city into different schools. And that both puts a huge pressure on the kids, but also the teaching and the, and the support staff. So it's the, the ripple effect is exponential when and I, it's expensive. When I was, so when, it, when I, when I was, I don't, I don't mean to cut you off, finish that thought. No, it's just, those are, those are the things. Yeah that we need to keep an eye on and that's where have you know it's about compassion and also just empathy and having been um and understanding you know that that 
struggle um, is important. Understood. And it's important to not lose sight of the people, right? So and, that's, and appreciate. As we walk by people who are sleeping on the streets, not thinking of it as a nuisance or something um, that, that we wish wasn't happening, but that that could be your brother or your sister. It could have been my ex-husband, quite frankly. And, and we need to treat this crisis like that. I appreciate you reminding us of the humanity rather than just of the policy problem. Let me also ask about one element of the policy problem. I had a chance to have a sit down with Sam Adams and was asking him. And one of the more promising ideas he offered, and this was recently, was more co-housing, more stuff that you can lower the price per unit. If, if instead of you make 10 apartments, you make four apartments and you fit a dozen people in each one. Or, you know, you do it sort of like and forgive this analogy, but sort of like, heck, Harvard College housing is is made where you have kind of a common common area, a common kitchen, a common bathroom, and you have four people who with each have their own room here. It sounded like a great idea. It would be cheaper per unit. I know there are uh, projects like it. I also wonder about that kind of thing in the current moment of a pandemic when all those common areas would be harder. Is that just me being a nervous Nelly or does that impact any of our plans? Well, I think about, I mean, think about your family, right? If you're living within your family, it's not like you're able to keep, uh, my son and I have not been able to keep each our germs away from each other. No, we're all right? good. If I'm sick, my wife's sick. We're if my all... dad's sick, my brother and my nephew are sick. Absolutely. So I think obviously we need to have a public health perspective on it, but that's exactly what sober housing is. Um, yeah. You know, it's a halfway house. It, it's different in terms of maybe the the mission is different, but we but the structure is similar. Room and you had um, you had common areas, and it was a way to keep community, and it was a way to stay sober and when my um son's dad was ready uh to get out of treatment um it was a six-month waiting list six-month waiting list to get into sober housing in portland not that long ago about five years ago so what other creative Um, ideas what other creative ideas do you have if we have the possibility of kind of that sober housing model that kind of co-housing model there's the other i mean i thought it was really promising when they said you know what we're going to give people the money or give them a low interest no interest loan to allow people to build adus build little tiny houses in their backyard because just by doing that we could develop a whole bunch of the price per unit we get down to 50 grand we'd make a whole bunch of housing around the around the city either you feel free to expound upon either of those or add anything else. At some point, it is kind of a math problem, right? It's the geographic math problem, acreage math problem. It's the math problem of price per unit and the math problem of how much money there is to buy each of those units. What is your creative idea to address those math problems? I think that it's less about, there's a lot of creativity in Portland. And one of the things that's great about Portland is our creative nature, right? So we aren't lacking in creativity. We're lacking in implementation. So what's the one, what's one that we haven't talked about that you really, and I'm not saying one above, above all others, but what's something you want to elevate and amplify that you think we really should be amping up in its execution? Well, I mean, sober housing for me is something that I think we absolutely should. I mean, there's just no reason around that. So that's one that just feels like a really simple, I hate the term low-hanging fruit, but it is. Um, and I'm, you know, the recovery community that I grew, that I got sober in, there was never a waiting list for a sober house or a halfway house or transitional apartment. So I think that those are 
um, are critical as a part of the solution. I mean, we also still haven't, you know, we were working on faith, uh, faith organizations and the faith community being able to start utilizing their lots when we were in office. And, and there still hasn't been a ton of movement, at least on the city side that I've seen, um, and I'm happy to be wrong in this, uh, where we are capitalizing on the hundreds of acres uh, that the faith community owns. So to me, it's, it is about creativity. We and you mean ch- both churches, you mean both churches and yeah. church parking lots and church grass fields? Yeah, yeah. What was your sales so, training? What You said you had a sales background. What'd you sell? Uh, so I sold cars when I got clean um, in Florida after waiting tables at a diner and cleaning houses. New or used? A couple of years. Both. I sold Chevrolets. Um, I was 22 and selling cars. Uh, and now you're graduating to politician. It's all great. It's all good. So, yeah. And then at the end of that, um, I was the general sales manager of a large Chevrolet dealership and you know, understand also the business perspective and and that side of things. Um, How did you make the transition from that? At some point, maybe you went to school. And forgive me, I'm trying to move briskly because I want to cover a couple more things yeah. before we have to wrap. What uh, what was sort of the transition from car salesperson to you know working in the mayor's office? Well, it was a big one, but I you know I was young and that was a that was a job. Remember, sure. I didn't go to college. I was. Um, had barely made it out of high school. Did you ever go to college or just set that aside forever? I did. And that was one of the transitions. So when I moved here, um, I went to Portland State and got my bachelor's in social work. I would say that the big thing that um, changed for me was the Hurricane Katrina. Um, When that happened, I went out to Shreveport and got my uh, shelter operating um, volunteer badge and went in and helped in shelter operations and and really connected to much more of where I'm comfortable, which is serving and helping others. And so when we came out here and I was able to go to college, um, social work was a, a great fit. And that's where I got involved in the legislature. Um, I was a my legislative internship was with the National Association of Social Workers. Uh, and Maura Roach, who I'm sure you remember, sure. uh, who, you know, where I got to I got to see firsthand how we could actually make policy and, and changes in people's lives at that moment. And I haven't stopped since. What was your first political job? It was working at Basic Rights Oregon as a community organizer. We were working on the whether or not we were going to take it to uh, marriage, uh, put marriage on the ballot. And that was the year that they ultimately decided that the numbers weren't there. Um, so that was my first job in politics. That's a decent transition. Because Maura Roche is one of the folks who's been moving and shaking in local politics for a long time. And as, at, at, I don't know if she still is, at one point was the lobbyist for Base Records Oregon and Planned Parenthood mm-hmm. and NARAL Pro-Choice Oregon. I should know this. Is she still? Uh, she's not, but that's who, that was what my legislative internship was. And so we were with plant. We represented Planned Parenthood, the social workers, um, youth rights and justice, and 
and basic rights Oregon. And so um, that was my intro into yeah. what lobbying was. And that was a pretty phenomenal way to, to, to get, get started. Into that world. You get into this race and almost immediately you stack up several endorsements, in part because of your advocacy background, presumably in part because of your relationships and partly because of your service in the mayor's office. And one way to take that is, hey, these folks know her. Those endorsements are great red badges of courage. They demonstrate her ability, and she got all those endorsements. She's so great. Other people look at it and say, hey, wait a minute. Is it fair that with 13 candidates they endorse without even an interview of the other candidates? I, I'm, I know you've had to talk about this a bunch. Any reflections on that that you think have been underappreciated up to now? I mean, I just think that the if people knew the amount of work that I've done on climate, especially in the last uh, four years, and especially uh, as a partner with OLCV, it makes total sense. You know, I'm honored, and it's not my job to create their, their process, but the reality is, is that I have been a champion with them, and they've seen that I won't back down, and we pushed it all the way to victory. And that was before... Um, the actual, you know, getting the endorsement, but that's, that's leadership. And that's also a lot of hard work. Yeah. So that wasn't, my intent wasn't, you know, I didn't do this job so that I could get a good endorsement. I did the job because I care about the future of our, um, for our kids and, and, and our economy and our environment. Um, and that I think is the difference, you know, that's, that's how this works. And I couldn't be more proud of that um, endorsement. And same with NARAL. I mean, reproductive justice is something that I've been working on. And I know everybody, you know, a lot of people have. I happen to spend my Saturdays in a board, you know, doing board meetings and, and working on emergency responses. And, you know, those are the, the steps going above and beyond. And I do obviously also go to rallies. Um, but that's not what this is about. It's about will this person jump in front of this issue and champion it for us. And, yeah. um, and then you look at Oregon Recovers. I'm the first person that we've had to be in a candidate out talking about my path um, yeah. and talking about being in recovery. That's something that we've been told that you're supposed to be quiet about, and, and especially politicians. That's the thing you want to hide. And they want to pick um, a champion and they don't need to, an interview is not going to teach them. The argument would be an interview is not going to teach them more than their experience with you has already taught. Before we got to go, though, I do want to ask about climate. You brought it up, critical priority. And let me share with you something that drives me nuts. And I don't say this, I mean, I'll acknowledge my own hypocrisy, including on this issue with my own personal life. Heck, I, you know, drive a car all around the, uh, heck, I drove my truck here, uh, but there is something that drives me nuts, and that is that candidates in Portland and Democratic candidates generally in Oregon run on climate. They run on run to get the League Conservation endorsement. They get to get they do it so they can get some of the environmental donor money, and they get it maybe most importantly to get a bunch of votes from human beings who recognize that we are in not only a housing crisis, also a climate crisis. And then when we look at our primary transportation expenditures in the state and pri our primary energy that is expended. It ends up being about highway building and highway expansion. And the biggest projects we take on and the biggest projects being argued about right now are a huge highway expansion up I-5 and then a huge highway expansion across the river on I-5. How do you apply that environmental ethic to transportation choices? You won't make all those decisions, but you'll be involved in a lot of them. we got to get off fossil fuels. And I think part of the, the reason I did get the OLTV endorsement is, is that we have been told 
too many times by politicians that they're with us until it comes time to do the hard stuff. Um, and you saw, we all saw that unfold heartbreakingly over the last couple legislative sessions as we've been trying to work on climate and do the, and do the work. The reality is, is we have to get off of fossil fuels um, and we need to transition quickly and we need to not be looking at any, um, any solution that is built around fossil fuel usage and, and what we're doing. So for transportation, you know, one of the big things that we were able to get out of our climate uh, package that the governor is the governor's executive action was increasing our clean fuel standard from 10% to 25%, which is the biggest in the nation. And this is important because it's going to reduce 20 million metric tons of pollution um, when it's instated and it creates jobs. Um, it's created innovation. It's, it's also um, investing in our transportation electrification infrastructure. And these are all critical components of getting off of fossil fuels, as you know, because we don't have those options yet. It doesn't make us bad for driving cars. It's just the reality that we have not, we don't have the people in power that are, have the courage and that this is their top issue. And they want to make sure that we are doing everything we can with a climate lens. And that means, you know, getting off of fossil fuels, not taking fossil fuel money, um, when you're running for office. And the you fossil know, fuel money, it, it, like oil companies end up not doing that much to directly control Democratic primaries or Portland City Council races. But building trades endorsements and building trades money do. So what do you say to Joe Esmond, the guy who's uh, on the electrical uh, electricians union uh, leader, and he is saying, listen, we need jobs. And don't tell me, and th- by the way, this is, this is what he's been saying apparently, and don't tell me just about green jobs. I need jobs that include concrete and steel. And by the way, parenthetical fossil fuel fueled Uh, what do you say to joe how do you manage those politics well i say like i say to anybody um you know when the secretary of state kicked out our ballot measures this earlier this year or last year later last year i guess it is now uh because they challenged the single subject for our 100 percent clean energy ballot um they said that we couldn't have labor standards in there and instead of taking the labor standards out i sued her um, and we won. So, so it's championing you know, it's, championing labor values in other ways, even if you're saying, even if you're going to resist a big highway expansion. Will you resist a big highway expansion? Climate, yes, I do resist the big highways. But climate jobs, green jobs aren't parenthetical. Those are real jobs, right? Those are not only your construction jobs and steel and concrete. There are also the admin and the sales and, and all of the other jobs that come along with a new economy. And we have to be willing to all step in. We can't trade uh, labor standards and wages for green jobs. They need to be both. And you have to fight for both. You can't just say, I'm opposed to something, I think. You need to say, how do we make this work not only for our most impacted communities um, and our workers? How do we create a clean energy transition to the new economy where it's not on the backs of workers, but we're actually we're actually bringing them along and, and creating, you know, living wage jobs that, that can't be outsourced. And these are good paying jobs. But what there's a lot of distrust between the environmental community and the labor community. And we absolutely that's why the Blue Green Alliance is so critical right now um, to create these opportunities where it's both. And you should never 
be willing to compromise one for the other. It's similar to affordable housing when people ask if you're willing to trade family wage jobs to build more affordable housing. No, if a, a worker can't actually afford the work that we're the the housing um, and we're in an affordability crisis, not paying fair wages is not the way we get out of an affordability crisis. Anything you want to say at the end, either to sum up or to cover something that I was too myopic to bring up? No, I just, you know, I think my leadership and my experience is really what sets me apart. It is a crowded field, and there's some really great candidates in this field who have, um, you know, strong perspectives. I think what sets me apart is that I have, I know exactly what um, City Hall, what I'm walking into I have eyes wide open and I'm ready to start the day, the first day of the job. And it's not going to take a long time for me to get up and running. And that's critical, especially as we're in the middle of a crisis, uh, multiple crises, uh, is to make sure that it's not going to take a long time to get up. I also think it's really important, and we've talked about it, but I can't um, overstate the importance of of the of being in recovery and making sure that that community is really being represented in city hall this is a community that has been forgotten and has been left to the side because it is an anonymous community and we have to have our voices there and we have to have a seat at the table and as someone who has accessed those services um, i won't let those get cut and so you know i i do think that i am the best person for this job at this time. And I'm really excited to push Portland forward in terms of, you know, making sure that people have roofs over their head and we're going to fight with that generation that is making sure that they have a future um, and, you know, and for our workers. So it's not just talk for me and it's not just political platitudes. Uh, This is real. This is about life and death and, and I'm there and I'm in it to fight. Tara Hurst, candidate for city council. Thank you so much for spending the time. Thanks, Jefferson. Take care. Be well. Stay healthy. Likewise. This is the Vision 2020 series, us trying to give a chance to candidates who aren't going to be able to knock on as many doors or go to as many town hall meetings or participate in as many in-room, in-person live debates to give you the information, give them the platform, and have the discussion that our democracy needs to have to figure out how we're going to get out of this and what are we going to do next, what are our key priorities, and how are we going to solve them. Thank you so much for listening. Radio is yours.